Coming to you from the front lines of America's fight for freedom, it's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. What this world needs is a few more redheads. So people ain't afraid to take a stand. What this world needs is a little more respect for the Lord and the law and the working man. We could use a little peace and satisfaction. So good people up front take the lead. A little less talk and a little more action. And a few more rednecks is what we need. Hey, happy Friday. Happy Friday the 13th to you, my fellow Americans. Here we are, it's Matt and Brett Doster coming back at you from the Real Talk 93 studios here in the capital city of the free state of Florida, where we are leading an international rebellion against the radical left and their agenda to control everything, including us. Matt, last week I thought we had an incredibly dynamic show with former Congressman Ted Yoho talking about the the political civil war that we're witnessing in the House of Representatives right now. But I got to be honest with you, I think out of all the shows we've done, I'm most excited about the topic and guests that we have today. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Brett. And uh, American View, where our format is not necessarily to talk about the latest news every week, but we have seen three weeks of just, you know, significant developments in in the world. And uh, we're definitely dealing with that for about a week now with this uh, awful attack on Israel uh, by Hamas down off the Gaza Strip. And so, yeah, I think that's what the whole world's talking about. We're going to talk about it, and we're going to talk about it with some expertise. We've got a great guest coming up later in the show, uh, Tim Fitzpatrick. He's a retired U.S. Army officer with a very distinguished career, Um, uh, served in the infantry, psychological operations, and uh, after his retirement from the military, continued to serve in the national security field uh, in the private sector. So got a ton of experience, got a ton of insight, and actually he served in the Gaza Strip. So I think we're going to get a really good firsthand um, assessment and, and some good information to share with our listeners. Yeah, I agree. You know, the way that we usually, usually do this format and the way it's become evolving as a show, we get the opportunity at the end of the week to do almost a single topic roundup to help our audience work through some of the challenges that have been brought to bear on the American political system or on the American policy debate. And uh, in today's show, look, we've been seeing, I think everybody's been, been grappling with extraordinarily graphic images coming to us from Israel, from the Gaza Strip. We have seen acts of brutality on a scale that, uh, I don't think we've seen before, maybe not since 9-11, but even that was sort of a byproduct of a terrorist act. Um, Some of these acts of assassination, of public uh, killings, uh, the public raping, public dismemberment of uh, even children has been almost too much, I think, for people to bear. And so uh, what I'd like to do is, is maybe as we work through things with our guest today is give our audience a sense for why these attacks happened in the first place. I think that's one thing I'd like to walk away with on this show. Secondly, I think we have to talk about the cheap politicization that has occurred around these events in the last week with both sides of the aisle and discuss whether that sends a bad signal, uh, maybe perhaps a weak signal to our enemies and allies abroad. And then thirdly, maybe in the last segment after Tim 
uh, graces us with his presence, maybe uh, you and I can talk with the audience a bit about some ideas and strategies for America going forward, mainly on a political and policy basis to try to uh, make sure that we are feared by our enemies and relied upon more uh, confidently by our allies. Yeah, the politicization is is inevitable. Uh, I mean, this is the field that you and I work in, so we see that whatever the issue is, there's going to be political dynamics, there's going to be an angle that various players um, take, and some of it is is good, a lot of it is bad. I mean, a lot of it is, is cheapening what is a very serious um, matter of right and wrong, matter of life and death, a humanitarian crisis, um, something that's threatening the, the national sovereignty of nations. Uh, so, I mean, this, the stakes are huge. And so you would hope that there would be a little less pol- politics and a little bit more unity. I'm not sure we're seeing that yet, but, you know, obviously this is unfolding and there's room for improvement as we go. We'll, we'll hope for the best. Amen. Well, Matt, what do you think? I think let's go ahead and get uh, Tim on the line if you want, and then uh, let's jump into it because I think this is a discussion that's much needed. Tim Fitzpatrick, I believe we got you on the line now, my friend. Welcome to the show today. Thank you for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to do this. Tim, uh, you, uh, <laughs> I almost, we don't have time on the show to read through your bio, <laughs> but I was wondering if maybe you would give us, you, you retired um, from the military and then spent a significant amount of time uh, in civilian service as well, uh, but really, for all practical purposes, still supporting the military, and uh, as I understand it, served time in the Gaza Strip as well, correct? Well, I was in the multinational force and observers as an operations officer for that force, and that force exists to uh, observe and report on the Treaty of Peace between Israel and Egypt that that ended uh, the occupation of the Sinai and allowed Egypt to... Uh, reoccupy that terrain. And that's been there since uh, Ronald Reagan uh, instituted it in, uh, I believe, 1982 was the first year. But they're still there, and there's an American battalion on the ground. We were not in Gaza, but we abutted Gaza in our observation posts near Gaza and Rafah, um, overlooked that area. We traveled through that checkpoint at Rafah, the tip of Gaza and Israel, uh, many, many, many times. I've been through that area quite a lot. So this has been one of the hot spots of the world, uh, let's face it, really going all the, back, all the way back to 1948, you know, post-World War II. But I think you know, what becomes difficult for our audience and many Americans is trying to sort through who all the different groups are. Uh, so you've got Hamas on the south part in Gaza. You have Hezbollah in the north. Uh, can you give us some sense, Tim, and our audience some sense of exactly what Hamas is and why they're in Gaza? Well, Hamas is predominantly a radical Sunni group, and they are one of the, uh, I would say, split-off factions or a political opposition to the initial uh, Palestinian Liberation Organization. So you have Hamas uh, in the southwest of Israel on the uh, Mediterranean coast abutting Egypt, and Egypt, of course, is um, Sunni Muslim as well. Um, and then uh, you have the Palestinian Liberation Organization, PLO, in what's uh, euphemistically referred to as the West Bank. Mm. And then you have uh, Hezbollah, which is uh, Shia uh, in uh, Lebanon and, uh, and Syria. But you also have other groups uh, floating around that area with uh, ISIS, 
and whatever's left of uh, Al-Qaeda. Uh, and ISIS was uh, operating in the uh, Sinai somewhat over the last uh, 15 years or so. So uh, quite a complex mix of groups and organizations in that region. Tim, I think uh, from our perspective, you know, it's easy when you're an American, you, you sort of assume that the whole world is made up of nation states with clear leaders, clear governments, all that sort of thing, just because that's what we're used to. Um, but there's a lot of parts of the world where that's not the case. Can you comment on that as far as this region goes, um, you know, as to the extent that there's, is there political stability or instability? Are there clear leaders? Is it kind of the law of the jungle as far as who happens to be in charge at any given time? Well, you, if you break it down into uh, the different uh, players, I think uh, Egypt with al-Sisi is relatively stable. Uh, however, they're, they always dance on the edge with the uh, Muslim Brotherhood uh, that's uh, been suppressed by uh, al-Sisi since the uprising that you saw in Cairo many years ago. Um, and that that whole government was objected to by the Obama administration because uh, they uh, took over from a democratically elected uh, government that was tilting towards the Muslim Brotherhood and was replaced by the kind of traditional uh, uh, Nasser uh, Assad um, uh and uh, uh, LCC uh, wing. Um, so they're stable now, but this is Friday, and we'll see uh, after mosque prayers what happens uh, in the streets of Cairo, if anything, and in Jerusalem, and in uh, Damascus, and in other areas in the Middle East. So um, just real briefly then, Tim, why was Hamas... Um sort of, uh, why did they pick Gaza, or was it really not that they picked Gaza, but that it became an opportunity for them to take power? Well, they're, again, a, a political faction that took over power in Gaza. If you remember, uh, the PLO uh, initially was touting that it represented all Palestinians, and then there was a political split uh, between uh, Hamas in uh, Gaza and uh, the PLO, so Hamas took over basically the government of uh, of Gaza. And when they stay, uh, one of the solutions is a two-state solution with Palestine and Israel. That's much more complicated now because you really have uh, the West Bank under the PLO. You have Gaza under Hamas. So uh, it would be. You know, it'd be interesting to see the theory of how that could become a unified state. And they're also widely dispersed geographically. So technically speaking, Tim, and I want to set us up because we're coming kind of into the end of the la of the first segment. Uh, I want to set us up for the second segment, um, but uh, very, very briefly, uh, they, in fact, are technically Hamas is a legitimate government then in, in that they have power over that Gaza Strip area, correct? Uh, think about that for a minute, and i tell you what, when we come back in the first part of the next segment, I want to answer that question and get deeper into this. Okay. Okay. They're 10 pounds of common sense in a five-pound bag. Matt and Brett will be right back. I've got you on the 
where we still don't understand the insanity of the woke. It's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. All right, we're back for the second segment. Very uh, informative first segment today as we are talking with Tim Fitzpatrick, who is a retired major in the United States Army, but has a uh, post-military record even with a civilian record supporting the military, particularly in the Middle Eastern theater, uh, has a, um, a resume a mile long and has given us some perspective here on the events that we've witnessed in Israel over the last week. Tim, great to have you back on for the second segment. So just picking up on that uh, question I was leaving you with, it is, uh, it is true then that we can think of Hamas governing Gaza legitimately, that they are the legitimate government for the Gaza Strip. Is that correct? Well, it depends on how you view legitimacy. They're certainly the popular political movement within uh, Gaza and have taken over the government of of Gaza uh, somewhat with the will of the people, but also through their tactics of terror and intimidation. And so if you, you know, if you read up on this, there was, uh, I guess, an election maybe around 2007 when Hamas first came in. Is it is it correct for us to think of this like representative government, popular government, or is it the sort of thing where once they get in power, they, they just kind of hold on to it? Well, I think if you talk to the average uh, person in Gaza, they probably look at Hamas as their uh, legitimate government. But in the same manner in which you see uh, that imposed in uh, in other uh, other states, so they rule with the will of the people, but also uh, use the people to promulgate their will. Yeah, that makes sense. So right now, whether they're legitimate or not, they're the ones in power. Uh, they have executed this terrorist operation what I'm calling a terrorist operation, I guess in their minds it's a military operation against Israel, but in my view it's a terrorist operation. Uh, It's been very brutal. And um, the Israelis are responding in kind. Now, it appears, Tim, from the news reports that we're all seeing that there are some American citizens being held hostage right now. And if you see what's happened with the Biden administration, yes, they sent a, I guess, a carrier strike group into, if that's the right term, they also have sent um, ammunition, it looks like, and some other supplies, and they have sent uh, maybe a, a, a fighter squadron. But Correct. do we need to have boots on the ground? I think a lot of Americans are saying, do we need Americans there to superintend rescuing Americans, or are we simply uh, content to trust the, the, the Israelis are going to get the job done for us? Well, my question would be to that uh, – You've got a major ground operation probably about to occur. You've got total confusion on the ground in Gaza. Gaza is a very small place with uh, a lot of people living it, very densely populated. So even if Israel wasn't there, um, how long would it take an American force to even get oriented and to determine where people are? Mm. So that's number one. Number two, the Israeli uh, problem is immediate. They need to stop these rockets, and they need to uh, get distance between their people and their forces and Hamas. Um, so given uh, given the facts on the ground and unity of command, uh, I would 
certainly trust the Israelis to do everything in their power to safeguard as much as possible uh, any uh, hostages. But given that, uh, I think the most important thing is what are, what would be our military objectives and what are Israel's military objectives. Mm-hmm. So uh, you don't want to take any action that would cause a conflict uh, in either of those uh, objectives. You want unity. And Tim, uh, you, you said, um, you know, how long would it take, even if even if it were wise, how long would it take U.S. U.S. forces to get into position? Are you, are we talking like weeks, months? What what would you, if you were going to ballpark that time frame, what are we talking? Well, again, what are the military objectives? Are you talking about a neo non-combatant evacuation operation? If you remember, in two thousand six, I believe it was two thousand six, we conducted uh, a neo in. Uh, in Lebanon to uh, evacuate American citizens. And we've done that routinely uh, as these things have occurred in the Middle East. Uh, so if there's a call to evacuate American citizens, that is separate and apart from any sort of combat activity. And that would probably be something that uh, uh, if this expands, you might, you might see. So, uh, that would be a question if, if increased activity comes from the north and Lebanon with Hezbollah, uh, as well as the south, what is, what is the call to do that? So, uh, I would say that, uh, I would not recommend putting any boots on the ground for any combat operations, but I would expect that people that need to be sensitive to where Americans are, what's going on in the rest of the, uh, the area of operations, and uh, would there be any requirement to evacuate Americans? Mm-hmm. Tim, let me ask you this. So it's clear that these um, animals, uh, the soldiers for Hamas, are willing to use women and children as human shields uh, or for bartering. And my question is, is it even worth trying to barter with them when ultimately it seems like they're going to end up killing their hostages anyway? Or do you just pursue a, a path of total annihilation? Well, I don't know what total annihilation means. That's a very ugly term. I think the Israelis have traditionally conducted, and you've seen this before in other incursions, and particularly in the 2006-07 time frame, I believe, and other operations, the Israelis will be very, very methodical, and they're very sensitive to trying to comply with the rule of and the law of warfare, uh, and to conduct military operations against combatants. Mm-hmm. They will attempt, I believe, one of their announced objectives is to crush Hamas. So that could be very, very ugly. Uh, and that's complicated by, as you stated, Hamas's policy of using their people as human shields. But also, uh, where is everybody in Gaza going to go? Right. Uh, Egypt has already said there will be no corridors or evacuation into Egypt of uh, people from Gaza. So basically you have everybody in Gaza uh, under the uh, gunpoint of Hamas with their backs to the sea. So I think any Israeli ground operation will be very, very methodical, probably very, very slow, and probably very attuned to maintaining their legitimacy as a lawful uh, government conducting lawful operations. 
Yeah, we, we saw that in uh, a post by the Israel Defense Force, which we actually posted on our social media account earlier today, but a very clear and, and kind of methodical warning to the civilians of Gaza to, to evacuate the north, uh, to evacuate Gaza City and, and go south of the river. Um, and they took pains as they were putting it out to show that it had been communicated with, with full warning, with a lot of clarity. And, uh, and the officer who was making the statement had a phrase, something like, you know, indirect contrast to the sort of behavior that Hamas has, has had toward Israel. So I, uh, I agree with you there, Tim, that they're taking pains to make that clear. A- any commentary on that? I think they're doing, uh, they did an excellent job, a fairly good job of, of communicating in the uh, 2006-7 time frame. I think you're seeing a, uh, a marked effort to do that. And in contrast to what you saw happen uh, inside Israel itself, um, they're trying to make sure that they they follow the rule of war, which is very difficult. That's why you will see slow and methodical in order to uh, to not go in in the heat uh, and passion inflicted by that massacre inside of Israel. Um, so you will see, I think that unfold over the next few days. So Tim, that's, um, I think we're, we're getting into an area that I'd like to explore further in the next segment. So we're going to hold you over. This has been very interesting, but in the third segment, we're going to have Tim Fitzpatrick expert on military ops in the middle East. That's how I'm going to describe you now. I want to talk in the next segment about the role of other nations, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and Iran. Don't go anywhere. America in View will be right back. On the front lines fighting the insanity of the woke, it's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. All right, we're back for the third segment with Tim Fitzpatrick talking about the Middle East and the crisis with Israel this past week. In that last segment, as we were closing things out, Tim, uh, we were beginning to discuss perhaps the role of other nations. Right. Look, I think for many Americans, we see the United States, we see maybe Great Britain to a certain extent with an outsized role on behalf of our ally Israel. Beyond that, you know, we basically in the news don't see a whole lot of action from other countries. Now, I know that's probably not true. But then there are other neighboring countries, countries like Saudi Arabia. You've mentioned Egypt a few times here on this show today. Uh, Iran, there's a big question about whether Iran is funding Hamas or whether they direct them to go ahead and attack Israel. You have Turkey involved. Russia certainly has an interest in this. What is the role of these other nations, and is it possible for us to all sit at the table or just not even worth it? Well, it's always worth it to sit at the table and talk. But you see a huge uh, display, I think, if you look at the Institute for the Study of War and The Hill and other publications and Al Jazeera, unfortunately, more foreign interest than in the U.S. reporting. Uh, you see Iran conducting a, uh, a a tour of the Middle East to build up support. Uh, I think the Iranians are all over the place in that, in, uh, certainly in Syria, Lebanon, uh, and other countries. You see Erdogan, uh, and I can never pronounce the name correctly, unfortunately, of Turkey uh, talking about, uh, uh, well, condemning the Hamas uh, massacre 
asking Israel to not create a humanitarian disaster in uh, Gaza. Mm-hmm. So Tur- Turkey's definitely a player that, that can be worked with. Uh, Egypt, uh, certainly I would, I would bet that the Israelis and the Egyptians, through their liaisons, are talking you know, every second as this unfolds, because it certainly has a huge impact on, uh, on Egypt and what Egypt has tried to do to maintain calm and security along their border with Gaza uh, in uh, the northern Sinai. So I think Egypt is definitely a player that has to be worked with. It, it has to be understood what their uh, political and realistic logistic uh, limitations and, and possibilities are. You also have the role of all the U.N. and multinational uh, organizations, international organizations, and non-governmental organizations who are in Gaza and in uh, these other locations, uh, particularly U.N. Uh, inside of, uh, of Gaza. Uh, with the uh, UN uh, uh, Works and Relief Agency, I believe it's called UNRWA, uh, working in there. So you also have Russia. Mm-hmm. So what is the role of Russia in this? And of course, they are in in uh, cooperation with Iran on most things. So uh, if you look at who benefits by what's going on in Gaza, mm-hmm. uh, it certainly is Iran. It certainly is Russia because. You mentioned earlier that we've landed uh, ammunition inside of Israel. And if you know, uh, we are critically short on our own stocks of ammunition. So this is another theater where ammunition is having to be supplied to an ally. And contracts have just been let for 155-millimeter ammunition that will come online. I think the goal is by 2026 to produce 100,000 rounds a month. Mm-hmm. Right now, uh, in 2020, 2021, we were producing about 12, 14,000 rounds a month. So do the math on that. Uh, the Ukrainians have been shooting up about 150,000 rounds a month. Whew. So uh, the Israelis use that saying that the standard ammunition across the world, but production has been extremely low in a, in a just-on-time delivery mentality since the end of the Cold War. And stocks have been depleted. So uh, this is another test on our sustaining base, our industrial base. Can we and other producers of this ammunition like Singapore um, and India and others produce sufficient ammunition to cover expenditures in Ukraine and now in Israel and possibly uh, other locations? So, Tim, you're talking my language for a minute. I just have to explore this without sounding like I'm being too conspiratorial, and I don't believe I am. Let's, uh, if we deconstruct the motives and the timing, here's what I see. Russia's own uh, ammunition stocks are running incredibly low. The Ukraine war has been going very badly for them, at least based on their own timetable and what they thought they were going to be able to do. Um, they've been having to reach out to North Korea and Iran for support on their own stockpiles of ammunition. So we have a big sort of political civil war in the House of Representatives where funding is now in question, and there's just all sorts of problems there well, for a couple of weeks. And now the House, there cannot be any legislation until you have a speaker. Right. Right. And 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 I presume funding, <laughs> funding, yeah. funding requests as well. So my question is. You know, did Putin basically call up the Iranians? Is it plausible that he called up the Iranians and said, hey, call your boys with Hamas 
give them the order that now's the time because we need a diversion, the United States is going to react significantly to the Israeli crisis, and that's going to give us an opportunity to strike in Ukraine. And I noticed in reading the Institute of the Study of Wars website last night that they have now started a significant counteroffensive uh, near Bakhmut, which is one of the hotspots over in Ukraine. And I just wonder if it's all tied together. I'm sure one is taking advantage of the other. I'm sure there's quite a lot of cooperation between uh, Russia and Iran and other um, bad actors that it's associated with. You also got to keep in mind, we have troops on the ground in Syria. Mm-hmm. So, And there's Russians on the ground in Syria. So uh, it would be interesting in the next few days uh, what happens inside of uh, Syria as Iranians are trying to uh, drum up support in that area and in others and increase operational tempo. So, yeah, it's, it's one taking advantage constantly of things as they build. Did someone sit on a map and plan this two or three years ago? Probably not. The Hamas is saying that they've been planning this type of an event for two years. So according to some of the articles I've read, so, uh, why two years? That's interesting. Um, and I think, uh, what they saw in the evacuation of Afghanistan, that disaster, what they saw in President Biden's approach to uh, offering uh, Zelensky a ride when Zelensky said, no, give me ammunition, which kind of shocked Biden. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you see clearly a demonstrated uh, uh, flight rather than fight mentality, and you see political uh, instability supposedly political instability in our uh, in our legislature in the house and senate so uh, you know it is a, it is pretty obvious that there is a uh, not united weak uh, west and i'm not just saying the united states i'm saying across uh, nato and the west and you see increasing fatigue uh, in uh, some european countries towards ukraine so, yeah, I think uh, I think all bad actors see an opening and will will take that opening when they can do it. Tim, what do you make of the Wall Street Journal's reporting, which is drawing a direct line between Iran and, and these events versus the U.S. government's uh, own reporting on intelligence saying we can't be sure that that there's a direct link on these events? Do you what's your opinion on that? And, you know, are we entering an, a, a phase where journalists are getting better scoop than intelligence services i would i would uh, say it's probably pretty safe to look at not only wall street journal but even uh al jazeera and other uh, reporting mechanisms and their commentary Uh, i don't know what i think if you take a legalistic approach can you prove in court that iran was behind would be probably what you're seeing from the administration Mm -hmm. because there's second and third order effects of saying absolutely they did that because then that might require action and uh in this case what action uh would you take towards iran it's already been announced that they're going to restrict that six billion dollars in uh in funds i believe that's in cutter right um and iran's already said if you do that we're going to take action against your people in the middle east and that means in Iraq, Syria, and elsewhere. So, I mean, that was that was stated the other day uh, to some reporters, if you read some of the uh, current reports. 
Um, so what are the second and third order effects of calling out Iran right now officially? And is anybody prepared to do that? And what's next as far as action? Tim, we're coming to the end of uh, the segment, and we're going to lose you. And uh, I wish we had <laughs> another hour to go, like I said. Real quickly for the audience, uh, because we don't have much time left, uh, what do you think the probability is that we'll have American ground troops there? we got one minute to go. I'm hoping that that's zero, unless it's in support of any required non-combatant evacuation, NEO, uh, that may occur or may not occur of American citizens like we had to do in 2006 in Lebanon. But if you see this expand into Lebanon and other areas, you may see that non-combatant evacuation uh, that would have to be initiated. And I'm sure that would be in cooperation with uh, uh, the nations within uh, the areas that we're, that we're uh, concerned about. Absolutely. No boots on the ground. The Israelis uh, will do what they need to do, and they will do it in a manner consistent with uh, law and with, uh, uh, you know, their tradition of not putting people on death ground but trying to take out the enemy. I think this is a place where it's really, really important to have strong leadership in the White House and a strong sense of a relationship with our ally, Israel. Tim Fitzpatrick, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been phenomenal. And uh, we'd love to have you back at some point in the very near future. You guys stay on tap for the fourth segment where we'll wrap up some of the political consequences of the conflict in Israel. On the front lines fighting the insanity of the woke, America in View will be right back. from their liberal chains. It's Matt and Brent Doster with America in View. All right, we're back for the fourth segment. That was great, Matt, with Tim Fitzpatrick. I was just on the break talking to him for a few minutes, and he may come back on even next week, if not next week, possibly the um, week following, to talk about some other aspects to the political and uh, geopolitical tensions in the Middle East right now. It is, I think, very concerning to many Americans, many people in our audience who worry about whether this White House is strong enough to have America lead, to get our hostages out, and still avoid being lured into a war uh, with um, other Middle Eastern countries that maybe have uh, zero uh, concern about engaging, zero concern about their people, etc. But I think getting back to kind of the original questions we wanted to ask about or, or answer, we said we wanted to give our audience a sense for why these attacks happened. We wanted to, I think we've done that with Tim. I think the, the tension over time is, uh, it's clear that they, they don't need much of a pressure point, I would say, to, uh, to get these groups to engage in combat with Israel. They're clearly committed to eradicating Israel or replacing the nation state of Israel. Um, but secondly, I want to talk for a second, Matt, if you don't mind, maybe try to talk through this debate about uh, the cheap politicization that we've seen in the last week coming out of both parties, the Democrat Party and the Republican Party, and whether this uh, maybe sends a bad signal. What do you think? Yeah, like I, we said before, everybody's everybody's reacting on a political level. <clears throat> You've got Governor DeSantis um, taking taking steps to mobilize Florida uh, resources to try to get Floridians out of 
out of Israel if they want to try to get out of Israel. Which which sounds good rhetorically and for the press release, but I don't think anyone really believes that the governor of Florida can can do anything to affect this conflict. Yeah, I mean, it's it's talking about getting people out who are not, you know, they're, they're basically they can't get a flight out or they don't have access to maybe some of the other charters that are going on. So I appreciate the fact that we're doing something, that there that there is some sort of action. Uh, what is really discouraging on the political front is – uh, what you might call the infiltration of of um, radical thought with not only some of the members of Congress, but with these student groups that that are popping up all over the place. You've got some just um, discouraging uh, expressions against Israel, and it, it's following the same playbook that we see happening all over the all over our country on every issue: the left versus traditional values. It seems that there's this playbook that always orients around the oppressor oppressed, this kind of critical race theory propaganda that we've been learning more and more about over the last few years. And so what it basically comes up with is, oh, wait, we've got an oppressed group lashing out against uh, an oppressor. The oppressed group is acting with extreme savagery, unprovoked, Mm -hmm. killing people, uh, you know, brutalizing people. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the left's like having to tap the brakes, like, well, wait a minute, can we condemn these people? Because if we do that, then we're sort of upending this whole CRT template for how we explain the world and why people are in the positions that they are. So it's very discouraging. I don't think it's hyper-rational. I think it's just instinctive. And you have you have people that can't come out and make definitive statements that says, this is wrong. This is savage. This shouldn't be tolerated. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, the political side is, is discouraging for sure. Yeah. So can I speak to that for a second? Um, because this, you really touched a nerve with me. You know, we listened to our guest, Tim Fitzpatrick talking about Hamas and the fact that they are, uh, the, for all intents and purposes, the governing power in the Gaza Strip, which is in some ways a separate territory from Israel, even though it's, it's heavily under what I would call Israeli influence. And the people there do have a say, if they wanted, in who their governing authority is. They have tolerated Hamas. They've allowed Hamas to come in. They haven't invited anyone else to help clear Hamas out. And then after these brutal attacks occurred, there were they were the Hamas, if you can call them soldiers, soldiers were live streaming their atrocities as men, women, and children are standing around cheering them on. And then we see uh, groups in the United States, these same woke liberal groups, the same ones that are infiltrating higher ed, the same ones that are you know, infiltrating our institutions, our uh, basically publicly traded corporations around the, the nation, who are out at rallies waving Palestinian flags as though the oppressor is Israel. And I would argue that the oppressor is actually Hamas, but it's an oppressor with uh, the public support of the people that they're oppressing. So it's really maddening to see this. And I think that's why I was outraged. I think many people were outraged by the initial message that came from Blinken, the Secretary of State, urging Israel not to overreact. How ridiculous. Urging Israel not to overreact. If it had been our people, we would be probably declaring war like yesterday. Yeah, it's... Uh the, the initial messages were, this is terrorism, um, diffuse the violence, don't let it escalate, so on and so forth, rather than looking at it as an act of war, outright aggression. 
and not just we're not talking about like a bomb at a bus stop like what we've seen in the past we're talking about coordinated uh with military armament with actual uh, with actual combatants coming into your territory into your into your sovereign land so yeah it's 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 um the the talking points out there that you're seeing out of the left and and out of a lot of um a lot of politicians is not what you would want to see it's not clear it's not definitive they're not saying this is right this is wrong this is what we're going to do and I, I like the fact that tim pointed out that that is important to the israeli cause that they're taking pains to be legal and, and according to the um the conditions of conflict according to international law some of which you know you and i may see some of the bureaucracies and the international regimes or, or some of the um you know some of those priorities that might be not as important to to say something where you have a national interest like this, but it is part of their game plan to come back and to to do things the right way. So, Matt, let's talk about the politics really quickly. The politics coming out of the White House, I think Biden finally made some definitively strong statements in affirmation of Israel. But I think overall there's the distrust that their administration is geared to deal with something like this in an appropriate way. I don't like some of the cheap shots that were taken at Trump. Look, there's other people who I think would make a great president uh, if Trump is not the nominee, Ron DeSantis being one of them. But I think it's a mistake by the political apparatuses to sort of take cheap shots at the things he said the other night because he said Hezbollah was smart. If you look at the entire speech in its context, that's he wasn't praising them. He was just saying they have to be dealt with seriously. What I think I would like to see coming out of the Republican side of the aisle right now is a really strong vision with a call for action. Now, Lindsey Graham has called for bombing the Iranian oil refineries as a lesson to them to, to cut off their uh, financial support for Hamas. Uh, I don't know if that's the appropriate action, but I appreciate the fact that he's actually calling for some lethal action here. Uh, what are some other ideas that perhaps Republicans should be talking about? Should they be talking about building up our Navy, building up our Marine Corps and our elite team responsiveness, uh, our our ability to respond with what I would call hyper-lethal force in these instances and guarantee the safety of Americans around the world. I, I would rather see those types of policies coming out instead of the what I would call the cheap political shots right now. Yeah. And the, the big question for me is, is what if, if you're an American overseas and you're taken hostage, what does the American government do for you at that point? I'm not clear what the, what the answer is, and I think there's been a lot of muddling on that issue. Um, we, we've seen in the last couple of years the U.S. do some things as far as basically bargaining for hostages um, or prisoners in the case of Russia and with Iran. That's something that has been frowned upon in the past. But basically, uh, kind of what I'm interpreting it is, is we're not quite sure what we're going to do if you get taken hostage. Uh We'll try to figure it out. We'll st- we'll try to negotiate. We'll try to work with whoever's you know involved in that conflict, which is not reassuring to Americans. Matt, I'm going to close off this segment with a little bit of redneck wisdom from Theodore Roosevelt. Walk softly and carry a big stick. And adding to that, when necessary, use that stick mightily so that our enemies fear us and they fear to touch Americans abroad. Thank you so much for another great segment on America in View. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to America in View. For more information, go to AmericaInView.com.